Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's all about inflation plus economics from a trader's seat. We'll discuss the outlook for inflation and how we should respond with a pioneer in the U.S. inflation derivatives market, a.k.a. the inflation guy. Repeat guest Mike Ashton from Enduring Investments joins us to discuss inflation, plus some of the lessons he has learned over the years given his deep and innovative experience on Wall Street. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We're recording this in late February, and the markets are giving back some of their gains for the year, but that was sort of to be expected, right? And what do you think it means moving forward? Well, yes, from a technical perspective, in other words, a, a price action perspective, I think, yes, it was expected. It's We had a strong January, a really strong January, plus typical seasonal patterns did suggest a pause or a step back. But you know what? Something else is happening. Economic growth has been better, stronger than people have expected. I think inflation data has also been stronger than many expected. And therefore, expectations about what the Federal Reserve might do are also changing. In short, rates may stay higher than people think. They might continue to move higher. And this is all changing even from a month ago. And that is why it's super timely to have arguably the industry's leading expert on inflation on the show today. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Mike Ashton is Managing Principal at Enduring Investments. And as you mentioned, listeners might know him better as the Inflation Guy, host of Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. Mike, welcome back to The Weighing Machine. Thanks for having me back. You know, it's always good to have a guest repeat on you. Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely great to have you on, Mike, for so many reasons. But of course, one reason is one thing I'm really proud of is our playlist on Spotify, which is well over seven hours. And since you've been a repeat guest, you've given us three awesome songs so far. You have given us Narco, which is one of the cool walk-up songs right now by Blaster Jacks and Timmy Trumpet. You've given us, of course, a classic like The Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin and Red Barchetta from Rush. I mean, those are three great songs. The pressure's on. Can you give us another one to the playlist? Yeah, you know, so one of my top listens in 2022, thanks to my son, was Modest Mouse's Lampshades on Fire, which is really a song about the environment, but it's got a line, fear makes us really, really run around. And I think that's timely both for 2022 and 2023. Fear makes us really, really run around. So Lampshades on Fire, Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse, I like it. Nice addition. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, as Rusty mentioned, this is your third time on The Weighing Machine. And Rusty also had you on Weighing the Risks, our other podcast recently as well. So thanks for coming on the show again today. And for those who have not heard you before, can you tell us a bit about your background and the work that you do at Enduring Investments? Sure. Well, I um, spent a lot of years on Wall Street on the sell side, the big bulge bracket shops like you know, J.P. Morgan, Deutsche, Barclays. And I did some research and did some sales and mostly trading and then kind of became the inflation guy when I was at Barclays and we were trying to start up the inflation derivatives market in 2003. 
And I was kind of the first person to trade interbank inflation swaps in the United States. And from there, I guess I had been an options trader and that was kind of a soulless endeavor where you're just kind of dealing with hedge funds all day. But once I moved into inflation, you know, everybody sort of has a natural exposure to inflation and there wasn't really a good way to go and, and hedge those things. So I really, you know, bit into that and leaned into it. And that's really been my career ever since. I was on Wall Street for a while after that, but but then had, I guess it was after the global financial crisis, when it was sort of clear that basis risks were not going to be welcome on Wall Street for a while, I left and started my own firm during investments. And the point of enduring investments is really to be kind of the uh, the destination shop for anything inflation, whether it's uh, you know a corporate that needs to diagnose exposures to inflation and how to hedge them, uh, whether it's an investment product that we sub-advise or advise on. Right now, I'm working with a firm to resurrect CPI futures, which will be very very exciting when we get that really really flying. So. If it involves inflation, I want it to kind of come through us. Awesome. Well, today's interview is going to break down into two sections. And the first one, we want to talk about, of course, inflation, what the current situation looks like and what it might mean for the markets, since we do have the inflation going on the show today. Second, we do want to discuss economics from a trader's seat. So more on that later. So let's kick it off with inflation. How would you describe the current inflation environment? Well, did I say something about fear makes us really, really run around? You know, the inflation either has peaked or is about to peak. Honestly, I kind of thought it had peaked. And then we got the latest CPI number and median inflation actually set a new high, which, you know, sort of unexpected. But it's in the process of peaking. And we're going to see those numbers start to come down during this year. Now, the problem is that, you know, figuring out when it was going to peak was sort of one trick. And then the next trick is where is it going to? And that's where sort of the market has got it pretty wrong. And it's going to take a little while for everyone to figure it out, but inflation is not going to come down to two. You know, the inflation derivatives markets were pricing in as of a couple of weeks ago that inflation was going to reach two and a quarter by June. <laughs> and that's just not going to happen. A headline of core inflation and median inflation are going to take a long time to kind of get back to any semblance of what we thought, what used to be normal. And when I say a long time, I mean years. So my next question is, I guess, kind of like just taking that answer and to see if I could force some sort of articulation on a <laughs> forecast. What is your outlook on inflation for the remainder of the year in terms of numbers or range of numbers? I tend to forecast median because when you forecast core inflation or headline inflation, you really have to be forecasting some weird, wild outlier. Like if you're forecasting headline inflation, you've got to know what gasoline is going to do. And I don't know what gasoline's going to do. If you're forecasting core, we found out last year, you need to know what used cars was going to do. And this year might be medical care. You know, there's those outliers. But if you look at median, or there's some other measures like sticky CPI that kind of abstract from the one-off crazy things. And so I like, you know, I like to look at median inflation. And, and my forecast for median, it tends to run a little bit higher than core. But by the end of this year, my point forecast is in the high fours, like a four nine which would put core inflation probably in four and a quarter, four and a half kind of range. And that's a lot higher than I think what the consensus expectation is. All right. So another former guest on the podcast, Rob Arnott, has spoken on inflation a few times recently. And he says, 
once inflation reaches a certain level, it usually takes a lot longer to settle back to prior levels than most people in the markets currently think. Also, he says inflation tends to be more volatile. The number just jumps around a lot more once it hits these higher levels. He also mentioned that while inflation, just kind of the way that the numbers are calculated, while it may drop to under 4% by mid-year, that it's also likely to move higher into year-end given that benign numbers will drop off from late 2022. Does all this make sense to you? Three questions wrapped up in one? <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, Rob almost could have been reading my stuff. I mean, that, the first part of those that, I mean, exactly that camp, I've been talking that way for quite a while. I think What's interesting about the first part of the question, that once inflation reaches a certain level, it usually takes a, a long time to settle back. I don't think it's so much about the level as it is about the duration. If inflation you know, spikes up and you know, for a couple of months and heads back down, then no one changes their behavior. They don't have time to change their behavior. What matters is if we go up like we have, and you go up to four, five, six, eight, and you stay there for a couple of years, then even when you come back down, now you have lots of feedback loops that have kicked in. So I'll give you one great, simple example of a feedback loop here. Social Security adjustment is based on you know the CPIW for the year, I think ended in October, I can't remember exactly. And so this year, all the Social Security recipients got like an 8.7% raise. So if you just get a spike in inflation, that doesn't really stick around. But because we had it and it lasted long enough, all of a sudden you have lots more money flowing to that group of consumers. And of course it happens with wage adjustments and unions get stronger and lots of other things happen. And all those things only happen if inflation sticks around long enough. And I think once they do, then I, I totally agree with Rob, it is really hard to wring that out. But the second part of it about the higher volatility, that's historically true as well. Once you get inflation above about 3% for a little while, then the volatility of inflation itself goes up. When it's low, it tends to be low and stable. When it's high, it tends to be high and volatile. And so I, I completely agree there as well. I guess that third thing too, just to make sure we wrap that up, is like just kind of the way the numbers work off. So a 12-month CPI number, you have to like, when you bring the new one on, you just simply take the one off from 13 months ago. And kind of the way it's flowing, it kind of suggests that we are going to get lower inflation numbers by mid-year, but there's a strong likelihood it's going to move higher again at the back half of the year. And obviously, as we know, it's like a lot of investors, particularly the financial media is playing checkers and not chess with this data. And so mm -hmm. there might be reactions to this. I mean, is that kind of that what it looks like is going to happen? Yeah, that's, you know, I think the debate coming into this year wasn't that, you know, whether inflation is going to decline. And among people who kind of know what they're doing, it wasn't, there was not a lot of debate that it wasn't going to decline as much as the market thought. The question was, when does everyone realize that? <laughs> How long does it take for people to figure out that inflation isn't going to be at 2% by the middle of the year? And once they do, then lots of other things in the markets happen. I kind of thought it would take a few months for that really to sort of kick in. And it sort of seems like there's already starting to be kind of a dawning of that realization. So it might happen faster than I really had anticipated would. So based on what you're expecting to happen with inflation this year... What are you expecting from the Federal Reserve? So I always have to, or at least in the last year, I've had to, to caveat this as saying that I've been really wrong on the Fed. Years and years when I was a strategist and I was a Fed watcher and I was, I was not bad at figuring out what the Fed was going to do. And I've just been abysmal. My thought was the Fed was going to tighten 100 basis points. Markets would not like it and they would ease again. 
that didn't really exactly happen. And I think what's really the interesting phenomenon here has been that we've had the Fed tightening aggressively and markets really haven't punished them at all. And so Powell did exactly what he should have done, but I never thought he'd have the guts to do it, which is just keep tightening as long as markets let you. But now we've gotten to a point where it's sort of prudent to stop and take a look around and wait for these things to sort of flow through. You know, you're probably at a neutral rate or slightly higher than neutral rate, and each additional tightening runs higher and higher risks. So I've been saying for a while I thought 5% would be the peak rate. Maybe they have another quarter in them, but I... I still think that it, it's going to, when it comes right down to it, unless you have really alarming inflation data, if you think, as they do, that inflation is going to come down to three or four, and you're at 5% on Fed funds rate, it's not clear you really have to yank that up to six or seven. So at least it probably makes some sense to see exactly what's happening. You know, They do have, I think, an appreciation of how much they don't know, and that's different about this Fed compared to the Fed from five years ago that was completely confident that they knew everything that was going on. They were wrong. But now I think, and oddly, they have an appreciation that they can be wrong. And that's that's very, very healthy from a Federal Reserve. I hear what you're saying, and I I tend to agree, but there's one thing I kind of struggle with right now, and that is, so Chairman Powell seems more bearish on inflation than like the market-based expectations. So my assumption is, you know, the Federal Reserve's forecasting record isn't that great. And obviously their moves aren't just completely economic motivated. There could be some political considerations. And meanwhile, market-based expectations are those people trying to make some money. So why is it that you think the markets are more optimistic on inflation dropping right now? That's a good question. I think, you know, when the Federal Reserve speaks, you don't know how much of that is trying to influence markets and influence investors and how much of it is really what they actually believe. Again, I think the I think the model these days is different from the model I kind of grew up on. So I'm not 100% sure of that. But I do think that when you think about the markets and what they're pricing in and how optimistic they are about inflation, you have to realize a couple things. First of all, more than half of all Americans have been born since the last time inflation was this high. And probably 80% of the investor class has never seen inflation this high. Since they've been investors, probably 90% haven't seen it. And so, you know, every model that they have, either mentally or quantitative model, any model that said that inflation would be persistent was thrown away a long time ago because any forecast you made in the last 25 years that said inflation would be persistent failed. And so all those models are gone. And so I think that's what people, their mental models say inflation is mean reverting. It goes back to two always. I can always count on that. And that's what the financial models, the the mechanical models also say is inflation goes back to two because any model that didn't say that has been thrown away. And so I kind of think there's just a, a mental inertia, a behavioral inertia. And again, going back to Arnott's point, which was my point too, but (laughs) going back to Arnott's point, once you have inflation that's high enough for long enough, then behaviors change and models also start to change. And so you're actually starting to see some forecasts for for inflation over the next couple of years from Wall Street guys that don't go back to two. And last year, there was nobody saying inflation was not going to go back to two, two and a quarter. And now you're starting to see some people saying, well, maybe it doesn't kind of go down. So again, that's sort of all part of the process of relearning. And the question is, you know, who relearns faster? you know, the cloistered economists at the Fed or 
the entire mass of investors. I wouldn't bet on either one of them, but <laughs> they're going to be slow. They're both going to be slow, but it uh, looks like the Fed maybe is, is a little faster coming to the realization of their own mortality. All right. Well, let's pin you down on a couple more outlooks. What about rates? What are you expecting where we're going to hit for this year? So at the end of the year, end of 2022, my forecast for the end of 23 was about 4.5% on the 10-year rate, being about 1.85% on reals and you know 2.65% inflation expectations. I think the risk to that's on, on the over. And not so much real rates. I think real rates could maybe get to 2%. But I think inflation expectations, again, is something that could shift. Right now, 10-year inflation expectations are, are at 2.4%, which is just crazy. And if those meaningfully shift to where, where they ought to be and recognizing that all the risks to those forecasts tend to be on the high side, then you, know, you could end up with 2% real and 3% or higher expectations. So you get over a 5% nominal rate. So that's, I would say, 4.5% or over on the 10-year rate is what I would say. All right. One more. How about stocks and also real assets? Two and one there. So, yeah, have us two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> stocks, we came into this year overvalued, and especially for a world of higher than 2% inflation, equities are they're much richer valued than they should be. My belief is that sometime this year, we'll have the S&P 500 trade to 3,000, which from here is about a, well, so today we're roughly at 4,000 when we're recording this. And so, you know, that's a 25% decline. And I don't know exactly when that will happen. My guess is that by the time we get there, we would have been in a bear market for 18 months or something. And it's hard to make bear markets go on a lot longer than 18 months. So I think that we probably rally into the end of the year. So I wouldn't say we end the year at 3,000. I would say at some time this year, we hit 3,000. And at that point, frankly, I'll be an enthusiastic buyer. Real assets, in particular, I like to look at commodities indices. So you have to kind of look at all the different real assets, right? So certain sorts of real estate, like commercial real estate, is kind of in a little bit of a danger zone right now. Residential real estate is probably okay. Commodity indices are interesting because even though commodities, spot commodities prices, you know, have come up quite a ways, a commodity index is collateralized with treasury bills, which is now providing you a really nice return. And so if you expect you know, oil prices and all commodities to go flat this year, then a commodity index will provide you a 4.5% or 5% you know, nominal return, whereas last year it would provide zero. So we have this following wind to those indices, which, by the way, increases their correlation with all this stuff, and making it very important that most investors should have something in commodity indices. And right now, I think that's probably of the risky assets, commodities are sort of the best you're still the best option. So mm -hmm. there you go. All right. Do you know, I was thinking like your inflation and interest rate forecasts weren't quite as sensational as I thought they could be, <laughs> but a 25% drop in stocks, that was a little, little edgy, <laughs> thought provoking. That's one standard deviation. I mean, it's not, you know, that's- I know. We shouldn't be surprised at a 25% decline, right? I always say that we should never be surprised as investors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I have another question here, and one that I actually do not get as much as I would imagine that I, that I normally would. I think in past years, I did get a lot more, but it's about government debt levels. And again, they're moving to new highs. And there's always the talk, you see different articles. Some say that the increased debt levels 
is inflationary because the government wants to you know, pay down their debts with you know, higher inflation. Some say it's deflationary because money is diverted to paying down that debt. What do you think it means for the economy and the markets? Well, let's first stipulate that the government running very large debts as a proportion of GDP is just not good. I mean, <laughs> I guess the modern monetary theory people would say, that's ah, fine, you know, but having a great big deficit is going to hurt somewhere sometime. In my work, what I've found is that if you have very high debt levels in private markets, if corporations and individuals have really high levels of debt, that tends to be disinflationary. If you have the public, if governments tend to be very highly in debt, that tends to be inflationary. Part of it is that they have an incentive then to go allow inflation to go happen. But that doesn't really explain it very well because it would be very difficult for the United States to inflate its way out of its debt. You'd have to have an enormous inflation next year, and then you'd still have Medicare and Social Security sitting there, right? To inflate your way out of all the nominal debt, you'd have to inflate very, very quickly because you have so much debt coming due in the next couple of years. I mean, a large proportion of the federal debt is fairly short-dated. So... It's very hard to inflate your way out, given the way that we've structured entitlements and the way we've structured the debt itself. But certainly there is less of an incentive for governments to go and try to, you know, hold down prices. Now, of course, what can also happen and what does tend to happen sometimes is that you get official measures of inflation that will be lower because at some point the government will try to fix wages and prices. And that tends to happen in inflationary cycles is at some point the government says, you can't charge more than that for eggs, which just means you have a black market for eggs. But in that sort of case, then of course you get all kinds of really weird things. But all that comes originally from the fact that the more debt a company or a country or an individual has, the less freedom they have to do what they want to do, to spend the money, you know, the current income on what they want to spend it on because it has to go to debt service. So uh, I don't know, did I, did I dance around that sufficiently? I mean, I think yeah, the answer is it's probably inflationary, but. Well, it also sounded like it's kind of like modern monetary theory where it's not really a problem until it is. And it's, isn't there some sort of theory like about grains of sand you keep putting on a pile uh, and finally yeah. it just <laughs> yeah. slides? You just don't know which grain of sand it's going to cause it. Yeah, instability. There's actually there's a bunch of good books about this, but the one that doesn't get cited very often is Why Stock Markets Crash. It's obviously specifically about stock markets, but it was written by an engineer who sort of studied how materials kind of reach the breaking point and how you predict when a material will fail. And it turns out that a lot of the mathematics for how markets and you know, institutional structures fail, a lot of the math is a very, very similar to you know, watching a, you know, a stick of wood break and trying to predict when it's going to break. And more pressure you put on the stick, you know, the greater the probability is going to break tomorrow. Would be the missing variable be so like on MMT, people said like, hey, it's working until inflation freaks out. And so inflation freaked out. Would it be <laughs> on debt that, you know, the US dollar is sort of the, the savior of the overall economy? Is it kind of the, what we need to be watching for is that the dollar significantly weakens at that point? Is that when we start to worry about it more? It's hard to figure out exactly which canary in the coal mine to really go watch. You know, the problem with just watching the dollar is if everybody is running huge deficits, as they are, then it's not clear why the dollar would necessarily fall apart. So 
the phenomenon of the sudden loss of confidence, you know, the nonlinear just breakage, it's behavioral. And we don't know what causes people to freak out. And we can't predict when someone's going to suddenly freak out. It's the same thing. Markets act the same way. If you look back to the crash, actually, Bob Schiller in uh, Irrational Exuberance writes about this. After the crash of 87, all of the explanations that were given as to why the stock market crashed, none of them had showed up in Schiller's contemporaneous surveying of what people were concerned about. They were explanations that people gave afterwards. We still don't really know what the trigger event actually was. There wasn't a trigger event, just one day people wanted to sell. Yeah. All right. Well, considering all of this, everything we talked about, your outlook, what we know about inflation now, do you have any advice for advisors and investors on how they should move forward adjusting their portfolios or what they need to consider when it comes to building and putting them together? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that one of the things that happens when you get to higher inflation, in addition to having more volatile inflation, is all of the financial variables get more volatile, right? So, you know, expecting a more volatile world going forward and more volatile financial markets is something you should be expecting. And therefore, if you have clients that have a particular risk budget, whether it's explicit or implicit, you know, scaling back risk a little bit in this kind of environment, not because you think the market's going to crash next week, but because in general, the markets over the next five years will be 20%. I'm just making up the number 20% more volatile than markets over the last five years. So therefore, you should probably have a little less risk than you would otherwise have. Moreover, stocks and bonds tend to become correlated in that environment. So for the same level of volatility, that higher correlation means that your portfolio becomes more volatile. So the answer to both of those things is sort of the same, and that is you need to diversify more than you otherwise would have you know, in real assets, in commodities in particular. I think that people, particularly right now, given where inflation-linked bonds are valued right now, I think moving some nominal bond exposures into inflation-linked bonds, not all of it, but some of it, is a prudent thing to do. And by the way, diversifying into more overseas investments, being entirely dollar-based, all of those things, you know, that it's good investing hygiene anyway, but in a period like we're going into now, it's kind of more crucial to really focus on those things. Good counsel. And yeah, I'm probably not saying anything you haven't said on pretty much every episode, <laughs> did I? Well, Robin <laughs> is always preaching diversified portfolios, so they there did dovetail nicely with their message. That's great. <laughs> So let's turn to our second topic to this podcast interview. And, and Rob and I want to call it economics from a trader's seat. So given all the lessons you've learned over the years, analyzing, trading, and investing in the markets, you know, and I've been following your stuff for years, you've had a lot of really great comments. And I think you could almost have your own almanac of like maxims and <laughs> sayings on the markets at this point. And obviously you've had such clever titles to even your books you've written, such as Maestro my ass? Was that the one in the late 90s, for instance? So, <laughs> yeah, yes. So anyway, so my first question is, and it was related to something I mentioned earlier, is we just had a great January in the markets. You know, there's something called the January effect, but people also talk about if you have a great January, you're going to have a great rest of the year. So what do you think about January? Look, I think that <laughs> January is fine. I mean, the thing I would say about January from an economic standpoint is ignore all the data. Any data that's for a, a December or January, most of that should have such enormous error bars that you should just really not change. Whatever your opinion was, there's almost nothing that happens in those months that really should change anything. You know, as for the seasonal effect, I mean, 
I think that there are markets, obviously there are a lot of markets that have substantial seasonals, including financials. You know, the bond market tends to rally from September until the end of the year. And it's really consistent. It doesn't do it 100% of the time, but it does it probably 80% of the time. And there's sort of some systematic reasons for that. A lot of those reasons, though, are changing because people can become cognizant of it, but also because markets are getting more biased towards the noise, traders, and momentum than they are just the long wave buy and hold folks and the value investors. And so to the extent that you start moving more towards the fast twitch guys, a lot of those tendencies are going to tend to at best be, you know, not very useful and at worst be actually counter to the way you expect them to be. All of which is to say, I have no idea what this good January means for this January, except that I think we're going to get to 3000 at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. So the next question is, obviously you work with a lot of high frequency data. How do you treat economic data? How do you think advisors and investors should think about high frequency economic data? This is, I think, and I've been talking about this for 20 years, I think this is such an important thing for people to understand. You know, you get a a number that comes out and, you know, for a while, it's the jobs number every month is the data du jour, now it's CPI. The important thing to realize about all of the economic data that gets released is that they is not reality that you're seeing. It's a sampling of reality. And so it's an experiment. It doesn't tell you what the underlying reality is. You have to kind of know how accurate the test is. And most economic data is not particularly accurate. And what that means in reality is that you probably shouldn't react to any economic data, any any single economic data point. Actually, this realization goes back a long ways, too, because I mentioned Bob Schiller earlier, but he won a Nobel Prize for pointing out that the stock market and the prices of individual equities are far more volatile than they should be given how much information, you know, gets released and how much information changes. They just shouldn't move very much because the information itself doesn't move very fast. So the way I tend to look at economic data is I go into each release with sort of my hypothesis is that, you know, here's what I think is happening in the economy and that you know, if the number is vaguely close to what I thought it was going to be, then it doesn't change my opinion very much. I can't reject the null hypothesis that I was right the first time. Now, if I'm consistently wrong in the same direction, then of course I start to change that. But I don't look at any particular number as being really important, especially given, you know, how important data is to actually investing. I get what you're saying. So nonetheless, like when an economic report comes out, it can often move the market. And usually it moves the market because it deviates from consensus expectations with my quotations around consensus expectations. What do you think of and how do you use consensus expectations in surveys? I think it's more important to know what positioning is than to know really what the consensus expectations are. You'd really like to know not so much what are people expecting, but where have they put their money? I can be expecting, you know, a great number and I get a horrible number, but am I over my skis? Am I going to invest when I get the horrible number? Or am I going to go short when I get the horrible number? If I already have a position, then my reaction and the reaction of the markets is different than if I didn't have a position. So I, I think that going into any economic data, you know, you look at what the economists are saying, 
you know, it's a good exercise to say, okay, what do I think the market will do if is the market more exposed to below expectations or above expectations? And that's hard to know, of course, but that's far more important. There was a guy I used to know back when I was at JP Morgan many years ago who used to say a, a good number is a bad number and a bad number is a good number. Meaning that if you got a bad piece of data that the market tended to move first one way and then go the other direction once you kind of cleared out the bad positions and, and whatever. To a first approximation, that's not a bad guess. If you're going to trade economic data, it's less important to know what the data is than to know, just like it's more important to know what cards somebody is holding in a game of poker, you know, than it is to know what the next card out is. So Mike, you know, one of the things I sort of learned years ago is uh, sort of the expression called the pain trade. So it sounds like what you're talking about the positioning is related to the pain trade. You know, the market yeah. moves in the direction that causes the most pain. I'm on the right track thinking that. And that's exactly, you articulated that much better than I did. <laughs> but that's essentially what I'm saying is, is, you know, if the market's very comfortable with what just happened, then not much happens. If the market's uncomfortable, it's because it's hurting somebody. You know, you're forcing somebody out of a position and that's what causes the movement. Yep. If everyone is before and after the number happy with what they've got, then the market doesn't move. And so figuring out going into the number, which one is going to push people off of their uh, spot? Yeah, that's the pain trade. And that's what I mean when I'm saying positioning. If you can figure out where the positions are weakest, where the hands are weakest, that's where you want to go. So if you have kind of like this mosaic of economic data and you kind of have a rough sense of positioning in the marketplace, is anything more important than those two data points? Yes. <laughs> well, Good, and we'll end it well, there. <laughs> well, thanks for the interview. Thanks. <laughs> well, you know, I think price is always more more important, and any particular position you can entice me to to enter any position you want if you give me the right price. Okay, if I think that you know the New York Knicks are just like drastically better than the Miami Heat. I have no idea if that's true right now. I don't follow NBA basketball anymore. But if I really thought they were dramatically better, would I bet on the Knicks? Well, it depends what the spread is. And if you're going to give me the Heat and throw me 70 points, yeah, I'm probably going to take the Heat. And there are equivalents in the market. For example, right now, looking at inflation expectations that you can invest in in the market in various ways, you know, therefore... Two and a half percent for the next 10 years. And over the next, you know, we were just saying that through June, something like two, two and a half percent is what the market was expecting. So even if you don't think that inflation is going to stay up where I think it's going to, you still might want to go the same direction because the market's giving you a tremendous payoff if I'm even vaguely right. Whereas if you're right, not you personally, but if you think inflation is going down and you know, it's a 2% and you're right, guess what? There's no payoff. So I'll often do a trade. In fact, actually, when I was writing strategy for Bank of Trust many years ago, I would write, you know, I would write every day and I would put a trade of the day every day. But every fifth day, I would write and say, if you don't agree with me, Okay, I'm going to pretend I'm you and I disagree with me. What trade am I going to put on? I'm going to find a place where I can put on a trade that because of the price, even if if I'm wrong, I'm not going to get killed. So if you're going to make me bet with you, I'm going to choose the one where I get the best price advantage. And that is, if you're going to be a trader, 
that is more important than everything else put together, is find the place where you get good pot odds. Well, something else that you said was that 90% of good trading is doing nothing. Boredom is winning. (laughs) Tell us what you meant by that. (laughs) You know, all of the best traders. So when you first become a trader, you watch all the the flashy lights and it's very exciting. And you just want to get in there and you want to buy, sell and buy and sell. And okay, it's a new high. I'm going to get long. And oh, it didn't quite do what I wanted to do. I'm out, out, out. You know, and you, you know, go back and forth, back and forth. All the best traders I've known don't look anything like that. They just sit there and they do nothing most of the time. If you look at on the trading desk and you look around, you look at the one who's frenetic, he's not the good trader. Look at the one who looks like he's about to fall asleep. That's probably the best trader. <laughs> you trade when you can't help it. The price has aligned with the positioning and you've got some dry powder and you really have a good read on what's going on. And you're like, ah. and if I'm wrong, I'm not gonna get killed. And yeah, I have to put on the trade. And that's what happens. And But that doesn't happen that often. And so most of the time, if you're trading every day, most of the time, all you're going to do is scratch. I mean, that's your best hope is that all you do is scratch. And you make most of your money on that 10% of the trades. Well, the best traders just don't do that 90. They wait for that 10% of the trades and they just do those. So my goal in life as a trader is to be as bored as possible. Which is not what I thought I was going to do when I got into trading, by the way. (laughs) You know, that's really why, obviously, like short-term stuff. So decades ago, you know, doing analysis short-term on the markets, I did find that when there was a trend and you're just patient and just traded with that trend, that's where all the money was made. And when the market wasn't trending and you still had to be active, you just got chewed up and just grinded away. So, yeah. All right. Be as bored as possible. Got it. All right. So we have, and I want to switch gears a little bit here to talking about some of the themes in the markets that we've had in recent years. We've had a lot of them. And this year, it seems to be AI. That's the hot thing at the moment. So how do you think AI is going to change investing? Well, I think to some extent it already has. You know, the chat GPT is what we're all talking about this year, but there's been AI in financial markets for quite a while where, you know, all the the quant models, right, that why does the market move immediately as soon as Powell starts to talk? It's because they released a statement and, you know, all of the bots went and analyzed the words and decided whether or not it was a bullish or bearish statement, not because of someone sitting around and read it all. And so that's been around actually for a while and analysis of the uh, you know, seasonal patterns and of, you know, and of positioning and reading the order book and all those things, that's all AI. So I think that Really, what that does is, you know, I said we've got more noise traders and more momentum traders than we have in really my investing lifetime. You know, the return to those activities just keeps going down and down. And the answer is that you should be bored. You should do boring things like value investing and then going on vacation and just, you know, waiting a couple of years to check. You know, when I was a kid, the earliest piece of investing advice I ever got was, you know, don't check your positions in the paper every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, now it's every minute, but it's, you know, you know, look once a week, look once a month and see what your portfolio is doing. And you know, that's maybe a little bit exaggerated for today's world, but the returns to that kind of activity should go up as everybody keeps, you know, chasing the noise. Because the whole AI, you know, the value to that is if you want to 
realize the most money, you want to be able to, to pick out the short-term patterns, right? The long-term patterns, you're not going to do much different than the market. And so everyone's going to keep chasing these short, short terms, and it's just going to get more noisy, 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 noisy. And again, create more incentive to sit on your hands most of the time. Just want to follow up on the boredom thing, because I kind of like that concept of thinking about it. So <laughs> for longer term investors, it's almost like it's unlike the Peter Lynch role of like really knowing your stocks and almost falling in love with individual investments. But it's really, I guess, if you have an articulated investment philosophy and process, you just execute it. You don't get cute, you just execute it through thick and thin. And I guess that's kind of maybe boring to some, but. Yeah, the risk is, of course, and you've got to be careful because the risk is that there's something in your thesis that's wrong, right? You've got a model and articulated thesis and a process and you've figured this all out and, and either you're wrong or something changes in the market and it doesn't work anymore. And so you do have to be cognizant of those things. And you, you do have to be testing those assumptions. And by the way, working hard to make sure you understand what all your assumptions are, because a lot of times it's the unspoken assumptions that are ones that bite you in the ass. But, you know, yeah, you should be focusing on your mental model and then your process rather than how did that process return today? With our individual investors that were helping towards retirement, we try very hard not to look at, not to show them what today's, you know, P&L, what today's portfolio value is. We try to talk in terms of, you know, at your horizon, what's your expected portfolio value? And so if the market drops 2% today, you're in 20 years, your portfolio value is not much different. It's not 2% different. It's not compounded 2% different because it's mean reverting and it doesn't change. And so, you know, again, that's the same basic idea is that, you know, trying to focus on you know, sticking to your knitting, focusing on the process and focusing on sort of the long-term changes in value and the drivers of value is going to keep you more sane and more boring. Makes sense. All right. So my next question is, and I kind of always wanted to ask you this and is uh -oh. so you're known as an independent thinker. You know, some people might say kind of a maverick or a rabble rouser <clears throat> or pain in the ass, but are there any <laughs> useful economists that you think investors or traders should follow or that you follow? You're an independent thinker. Do you follow anybody? You know, I actually try really hard to not read very much street research because I find that if I do, it tends to pollute my thinking. You know, you know somebody who states their thesis very well, even if it's not a better thesis, but if they write well, I'm going to tend to agree with them. And so there are a couple of people that I read just, you know, that my friend Andy Fately writes about the foreign exchange markets and he starts every, every day he starts with a limerick, a market-based limerick. Now, it's amazing that he can do one of these every day, but it makes it fun to read. Now, I try very hard not to internalize what he has to say. What I'll say is, you know, there are good economists out there, but they're not always, you know, every day they're not the same ones. And so I don't want to, you know, name names, but I will say this. What you should be looking for if you go to sample thought, whether it's from an economist or from a podcaster, is you should look not for the people that you think are right all the time or that always give you the best answers. You should look at the people who are asking the best questions. And from an investor standpoint, don't ask, you know, hey, what's your historical return? What's your expected return? Ask what's your process like and you know, what's the motivation behind that process and do you stick to your process? 
I find that the economists that I like to read, and again, I, don't, I try not to read very much of them very consistently, but the ones I like to read are the ones who ask the right questions. And often I'll vehemently disagree with the answers, but you know, they'll bring up something. I'll say, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. Now let me go think about it myself before I read, before I read the, you know, before I turn the page over and look at, you know, his answer, you know, <laughs> let me, let me figure out what I think the answer is. And that gives me great value, even if he's wrong 98% of the time. And there's a smaller group of people who ask good questions. Hey, just one quick thought before I hand the ball back to Robin here. So on the limerick writing, limerick writing, I think one thing that's interesting, <laughs> I've always felt like my investment team, the members on it, should try to write as much as possible. And it's really to help them sort of articulate their views, but it also makes them sit on their hands. They're not just looking at data, wanting to do trades. And I bet just writing that limerick just helps him sit on his hands a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So he's not forced to trade or anything. I guess. Yeah. I don't really know, but he'll do, you know, one or two every day. You know, he wrote one this morning that started, the data that's being released shows growth worldwide's lately increased. Now markets are frightened that, that rates will be tightened by 50 beeps more at the least. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, for me, that would take like two days to write. <laughs> you know what? It's chat GPT that wrote it. <laughs> oh, he's been writing it for far longer than chat GPT. If I were him, I'd look at that, though. It's possible. <laughs> all right. Well, for our final section of the show, I want to ask some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on The Weighing Machine. And some of these will be new for you, some not. But the first one is, so based on your experience, your day-to-day -day exposure to incredible ideas and resources all around you, what is currently your favorite investment idea? Yeah, I don't really know. That's actually okay. really a hard question for me to answer, look, I'll say this, this is less of an investment idea that like say, any average person can can do and more something that I hope everyone's going to be able to do and something that I'm, I'm involved with right now. I think I mentioned this earlier, trying to bring to fruition. You know, we have a way to trade all kinds of different things, rates, stocks, commodities, but we have no way right now for the average person who's not an institution to trade inflation. And way back when, you know, I created an inflation futures market or I, the Merck did, but I gave them the structure and I was the market maker and it was a dumb structure and it died. We've tried this a bunch of times and we're now at the point where there's another group slash market exchange that has sort of an inflation futures event market and we're moving to actually inflation futures. So my big idea is that being able to trade inflation directly, not just headline inflation, but all the different little subcomponents, you know, it's going to take us a couple of years to get there, but that will fundamentally change the way you sort of think about your portfolio in terms of units of your future consumption basket. But that's not something you can go in and invest in today. So it's not an investment idea in the way you usually get them. It's a very clever idea, though I do want to note this question is how Rob and I get paid for doing this podcast, and you didn't really pay us, so thank you. <laughs> I know that'll pay off for down the road for us, so I appreciate you in the future. Um, okay, so here's a question that we've asked you before, and that is, how do you maintain your energy? I mean, what are some daily practices that you have? Has anything changed since the last time we've asked you a little over a year ago? How are you maintaining this energy and performing at high level? Well... You know, I've been a runner for a long period of time. And over the last 10 or 11 years, I've actually been a coach for junior high school cross country, and which keeps me motivated and keeps me running. 
But I'm also getting older and, you know, COVID wasn't very kind to my, you know, fitness and my energy level. So one thing I started doing recently, and this feels weird because it feels like I'm like, you know, pimping a supplement of some kind, but I did some research about energy supplements and I found acetyl L-carnitine is a supplement that doesn't have a lot of bad side effects and may increase your energy and increase your memory, whatever. So I said, what the heck, I'll give it a try. And from my own anecdotal, you know, one data point, it seems to work. Maybe it could be entirely psychosomatic, but I seem to have more energy taking one of these dang things a day. So I don't know. I don't know if that's real or not, but. Okay, now you've paid us. Thank you. I try. <laughs> See a little carnitine available near you. <laughs> there will be a show now with that link. So, I guess the underlying point here is is you have to mix it up. I've run for you know forty years, but you can't just run. You have to occasionally do other things, and you know. So this month, that's my new thing. <laughs> All right. So the next question, I, I don't think we asked this of you last time you were on because this has been a relatively new question for us. But when you think about the people who have helped you get to where you are today. Who are you professionally thankful for and what are some key lessons you learned? It's hard to nail down to sort of one particular person, although the idea of always of trying to sit on your hands as much as possible has kind of come from a couple of different people. And one of them was, and I'll mention this gentleman's name is no longer really in the markets, but Joel Strike was an options trader at JP Morgan when I was there. And one of the things that he did, in addition to sort of you know, not necessarily being in every trade, was that he had this way of naturally leaning against his own fortunes. So if he was trading well, he would get really depressed. If he was trading poorly, he'd get really excited. And so he had this sort of natural tendency to lean against his own emotional biases uh, that kept him very safe. You know, I'd have to say in terms of, you know, people that I'm professionally thankful for, I'd have to put Dr. John Houston of Trinity University, who was my advisor and mentor when I was in school and majoring in economics and really, you know, helped support and promote my enthusiasm for looking at everything in an economic lens, even if things that were not necessarily, you know, economics. And he was also a, a great econometrician. And so I think that I learned some really important lessons about econometrics that most people, even most people who use statistics for a living, really don't get, you know, some assumptions that everybody makes. You know, like for example, running a running a regression line through any given set of points has a whole bunch of assumptions that you better be pretty comfortable with if you're going to read anything into that regression. And knowing that is super important, keeps me out of a lot of troubles. And then I'd, of course, I'm, I'm thankful to Peter Benlardi, who was a trader at Barclays, who gave me my first real trading opportunity to trade OTC treasury options back in 2001, I guess. So that's sort of three off the top of my head. Rusty was hoping he was going to be on the list. I can tell. He didn't make it. <laughs> You're fun, Rusty. I'm just not. <laughs> He's just not that thankful for you. He's a little <laughs> thankful for you. I'm thankful to have known you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, you gave me a new supplement, so that's awesome. Thank there you. There you go. <laughs> yep. All right. So one more. What are you listening to and reading at the moment? Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? <laughs> Actually, uh, 
I don't listen to very many podcasts. You know, I have a podcast, but I don't actually listen to many podcasts. But my son got me hooked on the Magnus Archives, which is, I can't even really explain it. It's, you know, 200 episodes of a kind of a, an eldritch, mysterious I don't even know how to describe it, but they're they're short little episodes and they're fun to listen to, but it's entirely recreation for me. I guess when I try to sample, when I'm sampling things, I want to sample things that aren't really directly in my... I mean, I got enough of the markets. I got enough of the news, you know, every day sitting at my desk. I don't need any more of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thanks so much for coming on the show again, Mike. It's been great to have you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, tell us, how can our listeners stay in touch with you and your team at Enduring Investments? Sure. Well, there's, you know, of course, EnduringInvestments.com is a uh, you know, pretty basic website, but it's got my contact form there if you are interested in specifically what we're doing then there. Inflationguy.blog is where I do my own blog. And then my podcast, as you've mentioned, is Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. You can write to me, inflationguy at EnduringInvestments.com if you want to write to me directly. You know, talk about something having to do with inflation. You generally won't be able to shut me up if you get me started. That's the only one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you being on, on the podcast. And, you know, I was just thinking about this. So obviously you were on our monthly podcast called Weighing the Risk recently, which has had a really nice reception. So thank you for that. But as for the weighing machine, you've now been on when they were published, February of 2021, March of 2022. And this will probably be published very early April of 2023. Therefore, even though inflation will be a raging topic, it kind of seems like hopefully you can be back on May of 2024 that'll be published. And until then, if people need the inflation guy, they'd have to track you down in all those places you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of booked for May of 2024, but I'll- Dang I'll, it, I was just looking for a commitment <laughs> I'll too. try to clear something. For you, for Robin, I'll clear it. <laughs> yeah, I knew that would be the case. Well, thanks again. We really do appreciate inflation is a hot topic. And I think all these other nuggets were really fun and interesting as well. Uh, Thanks very much. It was fun. Good stuff. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. 
If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.